Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. And we are back with an all-new episode of Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. I'm Louis Fertel, and I did the thing. Louis Fertel did the thing. I did the little <laughs> dance. <laughs> you know what? I have to say what we're referencing is Ariana DeBose performing the opening number at the BAFTAs. And guys, I am thankful for this. Because if award season is going to be six months long, I mean, it feels like we start Christmas in about September. That's what it feels like. We need random things to keep the conversation going. And at least people were talking about the BAFTAs, which is wild. I don't know. I can't think of a time we had a sustained conversation about the BAFTAs that wasn't along the lines of, have they heard of black people yet? (laughs) Yeah. Every year it's really been like, um, oh, the BAFTAs, all these white people. And this year... The nominees were very diverse in, especially for the women, you know? Yes. Um, yeah, know, Danielle Deadweiler got nominated there and not here. Yes. Yeah. What's going on when London, when the UK is more in tune with um, Black women doing great performances than the US? You yeah, know? I'm, I'm JK rolling in the aisles thinking of what's <laughs> the pre- what could be going on there. Uh, well, we've actually got JK here because we need a background on the BAFTAs this week like we've done for the other award shows now. <laughs> she pipes up. Oh, God, imagine. Okay, so we have to talk about the nature of this performance. I didn't think this would even come close to a segment on our show at first. And then something happened with this Ariana DeBose performance where it's all I can think about. And also, I attempted watching it several times. And... The girl is giving it gusto. She's been on Keep It. No one is denying she's unbelievably talented. She strolled she to an Oscar victory. Yes, she has. Uh, no, she has a Tony nomination oh, okay. and oh. an Oscar win. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, this particular performance, she went so straightforwardly earnest, and it, it mm. was the rapping quality I would compare to an Urkel novelty single. That <laughs> it really sticks out. And I think the main reason why I can't get this performance off my mind is it's at the BAFTAs, which is, I think, the most sedate award show there is. Like, mm. the, the BAFTAs are developed for Helena Bonham Carter to mutter three self-deprecating jokes and then walk off the stage. It's not really about, you know, Billy Crystal-type Oscars numbers. And by the way, just this week, I was reacquainted with the fact that Billy Crystal once in one of his musical numbers, explain the plot of Secrets and Lies, a movie Ira and I both love, Mm -hmm. to the tune of the Brady Bunch theme. Like, we went crazy in the 90s. (laughs) Look this up. You will not believe it. It ends on a joke about Dennis Rodman that could only exist in 1997. I apologize that you'll be seeing it. But um, uh, I, I was curious about this performance since everybody was talking about it. And the producers of this defended... Uh, Ariana DeBose, and they ended up saying a quote that I thought was extremely funny. 
this guy goes, uh, I think a lot of people don't like change, and there's a view that the BAFTAs have to be the slightly stiff, traditional British, Middle England messaging, but American award shows have much more razzmatazz, much more showbiz, and perhaps a broader range of people being involved. We felt we're not about revolution, we're about evolution. Can you imagine defending a performance by using the word razzmatazz? <laughs> Your Honor, it was razzmatazz. Like... <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've heard the word razzmatazz probably since, I don't know, the last episode of Keep It. It sounds like a word you would say. Right. I mean, it's it's a word I, I would, <laughs> I mean, razzmatazz, parentheses, derogatory. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I can imagine, I'm trying to think of who you'd be interviewing on the show where you'd be like, um, you know, I would say your, oh, your performance had, you know, a lot of um, razzmatazz to it. And uh, Mary, maybe Barry Kyoga. <laughs> or Mia, Mia Goth in X, a lot of yeah, razzmatazz. That's a razzmatazzer right there. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very like 1940s variety columnist word. But um, uh, yeah, no, tell me what you thought of this. I th- okay. Also, I want to say about this performance before I ask you, I think something else that is jarring about it is she kind of is just rhyming the nominee's initials, mm-hmm. which I just want to say about initials, most of them rhyme. So it's not that impressive. <laughs> And then secondly, it was like she was out on a limb. The performance began with her doing a medley of Sisters Are Doing It For Themselves and We Are Family, so we're already on your grandparents' cruise ship. (laughs) And then she goes out to the audience to do this celebratory rap of the women nominees this year, and she sang nothing about them other than their names. So Mm. she was recruiting them to be along for the ride, and yet there was nothing to be along for the ride for. It was just their names. So it just remains... I'm sorry if I'm if I sound like I'm on Molly talking about this. I just can't get this performance off my mind. So you sent me a text last night too, like we have to talk about this. And the thing you also said was like, you've watched it so many times. I've watched it so many times, but also you struggled to watch it so many times because yes, when I first got it, I am not a person who likes audience participation for one. Right. Oh, like, ever, like if, if, ever. If, if yes. I go to a stand up show. Anything like magic? Imagine me at a magic show. Um, <laughs> but I don't like I don't like being involved. And something about, unless it's like a bit with like a specific comedian or something, something about the host of a show trying to get other celebrities or people in the audience involved in their bit just makes my skin crawl. And yeah. so seeing Ariana like amongst the crowd. The reactions, it was very much like, what is going on here? And it's fun. I mean, there's a reason all these beams keep happening. It's fucking funny. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> she, there's, there's also no rhyme or reason to what she's saying. It's so funny because Angela Bassett did the thing is like, what does she do? What, was Wait, the what thing? are we referring to? Yes. You know, and so, and the and the dance with it, it's just so... While crafting this, it's like, it's almost like she improved it. Yes, it, it 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 needed for somebody who's that polished, like a Broadway performer. It did feel like I'm running around in the audience, inventing <laughs> dance moves on the fly, sort of inventing this rap on the fly. You know. Also, I think there's something about her where she is so traditionally like Broadway, and that her vibe is celebrating everybody. That there was not even a note of sarcasm in the performance. That I think would make this performance a success for someone like Rachel Bloom, mm-hmm. who, you know, would come out and there'd be like this note of like slight anarchic uh, Broadway-ness uh, that she brings. But because it's Ariana DeBose, it was just, 
and we're all happy to be here. And so yeah. everybody has to be caught up in the giddiness or they're not. And, you know, we're most people. Also, it was the BAFTAs, not the yeah. People's Choice Award. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, Emma Thompson is, you know, nibbling on a scone and <laughs> trying to figure out what's going on. <laughs> Meanwhile, like, Barry Keoghan is in, like, the front of the audience, like, living for this. <laughs> just living for like it's, it's like his his killing of a sacred deer character he's just living for it being like this is chaos and I love it I always love when I say like the things that make my skin crawl when there's audience participation I also always love the celebrity who cannot contain themselves and it's like they are having the laugh that the people watching at home are having my yes, favorite right. in recent memory is Ryan Gosling during the whole La La Land, Moonlight thing, he is cracking oh, yes. up. Right, right. And uh, as opposed to like Meryl Streep, who looks like she's watching like Judgment at Nuremberg or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it really was, this Ariana DeBose performance was in, I, I'm just thankful for it. I'm thankful we have like a, a strange, a, a reason to talk about like Michelle Yeoh and Jamie Lee Curtis and Danielle Deadweiler. That and Danielle just the conversation we had pre- preceding, you know? Like, the fact that she's in it is fantastic to me because she won't be mentioned at the Oscars at all. No, uh, I mean, um, uh, correct. I, I don't see a, a way that would happen. And also, Ariana won the Oscar, so she's definitely presenting at the Oscars this year. And so I hope we get another reference to this. Yeah. Yeah, what if she just like comes out and just like, does the number while presenting the, the award, whatever it is? Um, which brings me to maybe an early keep it. Um, once again, something that's weird and goofy and funny and people are having a good time. It's just unfortunate that people could change something that was just pure innocent fun Here it into goes, yeah. drama. Because <laughs> then it became the story became like she was bullied off of Twitter by deactivating her Twitter. Guys, has she released a statement that said I left Twitter because of the mocking? My thing is, she's not a person who tweets. She commented on Evan Ross Katz's Instagram with memes of it, with "Oh my God, I love this." So. If she was actually terrified and in hiding, I feel like she wouldn't be commenting on and engaging with the memes on that page. I do think historically, like I remember during her Oscar year, she responded somewhat randomly. I think to Kyle Buchanan, with mm-hmm. like uh, who's uh, keep it guest uh, writes about Oscars movies for the New York Times with a, a sort of scorned comment when he definitely did not mean it that way. So I feel like she she might have a somewhat contentious relationship just with the online universe period, mm. but you're right. She hasn't said anything about it. So, yeah. So, I mean, I just don't want to imagine that, you know, she's hiding in an attic somewhere, you know, right. <laughs> I was just going <laughs> off of your Nuremberg joke. You know? oh, I was going to say also, it's just funny to imagine Ariana DeBose hiding in an attic. It's kind of <laughs> cute. <laughs> sh- sh- listen, they'd find her. Okay. <laughs> it's like 10 minutes up there. She'd be, she'd be doing, she'd be doing push the button from color purple. Right. Just thinking scales. We found her. She's doing pot of berets. Yes. <laughs> uh, I love her. I know. It's, it's she kind of is now this one of a kind presence. We used to say she was, you know, just sort of like the traditional, like, uh, 
chutzpah-oriented Broadway performer, but really, who else is doing that right now? I've heard a couple of people comparing her to like the way we used to receive Anne Hathaway as like way too giddy to be there, a little cloying, mm. schmaltzy. But at the same time, I have to say, I think people are so obsessed, obsessed with not seeming cringe that mm. and literally that word cringe that humor in a way has become this opposite of cringe where you're like obsessively cool all the time or like dry removed mm-hmm. sarcastic you know like even like all the humor on like tv is the same in that way i feel like and so and let me tell you when, something not everyone's cool okay no like, yes everyone Let's thinks they're go with that yes everyone thinks exactly. they're daria everyone yeah. thinks they're like the fawn rihanna everyone, yeah, yeah everyone yeah. thinks they're christian slater in heathers like you're not no, There's exactly. A, like, cool, cool has to mean something. There have to be some people who are just inherently cooler than other people. When I think of West Side Story, there's a place for us. That means nerds. That means <laughs> nerds, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, I want to say, if anyone was bullying Ariana DeBose online, it was intra-community bullying. Because <laughs> the only, quote-unquote, <laughs> shady comments I was saying are from people who are theater actors themselves. Oh, you don't say. Wow. So I'm going to tell equity. I'm going to tell equity. Okay. The shade was coming from inside the equity building. Okay. (laughs) And if they're being shady towards Ariana, then that means maybe it's like a personal beef. Right. Right. Or a jealousy moment. But, you know, it's like, it, it wasn't us. Okay. The call was coming from inside the house. Yes. Right. Right. And the stage manager picked up the phone. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, I'm curious to learn more about that. I ultimately applaud this performance. I hope we get more of them. I hope people have the bravery to go this hard in this performance, literally sounding out of breath as Ariana did halfway through. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, we have got a packed episode of Keep It this week. First, we are joined by the wonderful Audie Cornish, uh, of CNN and their new podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Uh, we're going to talk to her for a bit. Great about... talker. Can you believe it? She hosts the podcast and is a great talker. Ira and I are, of course, still learning English, but she is great. <laughs> we need Amy Adams in a sign. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also, Kelly Ripa um, killed Ryan Seacrest. You know, so, but it was euthanasia. They both had agreed to it beforehand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A Dr. Kevorkian moment. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's very exciting. Uh, so we're going to talk about that. And then if that wasn't enough, we have a second guest this week, Zara Larson, pop icon. Zara Larson popped into this Zoom and was razzmatazzing from the, from the jump. I was loving it. She is hilarious and very insightful. And she's, you know, Swedish, so ABBA comes up. Yeah, so we will be right back with more Keep It. We are excited to announce the return of Stuck with Damon Young, an original podcast from Crooked and Spotify. This season, award-winning author Damon Young has returned for more off-the-cuff conversations inspired by today's most culturally relevant headlines and roundups of Damon-approved, listener-submitted questions. The first episode is live now. You're going to love this show. Listen to Stuck with Damon Young for free, only on Spotify. The important work of political and civic engagement doesn't just happen every two years. 2023 has critical elections, starting with a must-win Supreme Court seat in Wisconsin, which you all know I'm from. So, I care about this personally. 
Vote Save America's No Off Years program is here to help you stay engaged throughout 2023. Right now, you can donate to our No Off Years Fund to help get out the vote in Wisconsin ahead of their April election and sign up to stay in the loop on what's happening and how you can get involved via remote and in-person volunteer opportunities, targeted donations, and more. Just head to votesaveamerica.com to get started. You already know our next guest's voice. She is a brilliant journalist and correspondent for CNN. And with her podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish, she is on a mission to rescue you from the echo chambers online and give you the real stories from the people actually involved. Please welcome to Keep It, Audie Cornish. Hey, how are you? Good. It's nice to how see you, you not on social media. I'm just used to seeing you guys as <laughs> your avatars. Oh, where we are our worst selves. So I'm so sorry about that. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, you know, uh, social media tends to bring that out of all of us. (laughs) No, I was going to say, just in your intro, we talked about getting people out of their echo chambers. Do you have a particular favorite or I guess least favorite way people are sort of stuck in their echo chambers when it comes to understanding certain topics or issues? You know, I think over time, I've become a little less enamored with the should we be platforming this? concept, Mm. um, which I think especially for progressives is is very closely held um, and is a criticism that's always worth thinking about. But I think sometimes it is deployed too quickly and with too little consideration for sort of the issues at hand. Um, And the conversation when you talk about it always spirals into something loony. It's like, well, what if it was Hitler? It's like, okay, you know you've lost once you've said that, right? Like, <laughs> don't use Hitler. Don't do that. Um, and you had a lot of articles, exactly, by the way. You know? Um, there's certain things, obviously, like, that I don't feel like doing, but for editorial reasons. So is it the best case use of my time to talk to a white supremacist who's advocating actual segregation or separation or whatever, because he doesn't think I'm human. That's not a conversation that's going to go anywhere, right? Mm -hmm. And I do think we're in an age where some of our, like, white colleagues can step up and do those things in a smarter way than they might have in the past. And then there's other things, like the initial episode of the podcast, I chose kind of a topic for this reason of having these women on who were, like, conservative activists who were running and winning school board seats. And people were just like, why would you even talk to them? Whereas to me, I'm like, they're now in control of somebody's school. Mm -hmm. Who are they? What do they think about? How did they get here? What drives them? I just think that there is something to be said for understanding people who pull the levers of power in particular. Um, And I understand why I won't go on, a, go on a rant. Like, I understand we've we've abused <laughs> it a little bit, you're, you know? Like, there's been a lot of articles, kind of soft articles on unsavory people over the years. Mm-hmm. But I still think that that is part of the echo chamber problem is, like, I just don't want to hear this person or that person, period. Mm-hmm. I think particularly you saying, like, you know, who's pulling the levers of power it's the thing that's interesting to me, especially, you know, like a journalist digging into something like that. It's very different from, you know, I think we all experience, you know, the constant profiles of like white people across America during like the Trump 
era, you know, very much. Who are they voting for? You know, like, I don't care what this person who, you know, works at a gas station is talking about who they're voting for. But let's talk about someone who is influencing people. Um, yeah. But, you pe- know, at the same time, are like, was the, with those stories, was the problem the stories or was it the problem that the stories were basically nine months too late? Right. Mm. It's like mm. we were doing this digging way after the fact. Yeah. And then it was just kind of like the white supremacist next door. Like it got really <laughs> weird. Whereas yeah. earlier in the process when his enthusiasm and the rallies and all this stuff, I think there could have actually been a little more digging about what it means to be disaffected, um, mm-hmm. to be a white disaffected voter. I think that that could have applied to obviously – some Bernie supporters as well. And Mm -hmm. I think the media had a way of treating these things as kind of like, well, those weirdos, who knows what's going on there? And then after the fact, wanting to do a kind of forensic discussion. And that I agree with. Like, I understand the Mm -hmm. criticism in that context because it's like, well, I didn't need this now. I needed this when he was winning the primary, you know, like Mm -hmm. that's when we needed to have this discussion about how this person was picking off ever major establishment Republican to stand next to him. Who was, who was cheering him on? I don't think we did a good enough job early enough understanding the dynamics at play. I want to say about this podcast though, you really cover everything. Like it's not just, this conversation makes it sound like it's all political, but for example, you talk about people not coming back to the movies and, uh, you know, why prestige movies are are alienating some people or a certain kind of prestige movie is going away. And I guess my question is, what is, what keeps you inquisitive about all these issues and how do you actually decide what becomes an episode since it feels like basically everything's on the table? Yeah. I think my staff hates me for that reason. <laughs> like, when I was first pitching the show, I'm like, you know, the people, the headlines. And like that language is so overused that nobody mm-hmm. got it. Everyone was like, um, whatever. The new girl wants to do this thing. We're just going to let her try it. Um, I sort of, I am, my brain works in Venn diagrams. It's like, there's one circle, you know, that's like zeitgeist. So is this something that everyone, air quotes, is talking about? And that is such an amorphous thing, right? That is a mix of social media, what's being written about in magazines or hot takes or kind of um, the weird chatter that happens on, like, The View or talk shows. But it's very, very surface. You know, everyone's just like, ha, 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 ha. And then, like, they move away from this thing. (laughs) That's me. That's us. Yes. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) And then there's another circle that's, like, real person slash primary experience. Like, are you, like, actually, there probably is an OnlyFans creator we can talk to. You know, like, Mm -hmm. actually, there is a person we can talk to who was in the Rota who could talk about Harry and Meghan and the British press. Like, Mm -hmm. and we, and then the last thing is sort of, you know, what is the big question that can be asked? You can probably hear in the way I structure the show and in the way I think I just like to ask questions. I'm not a person that's like, and here's what it means, you know, and that's the rest of the story. And like, here's my chalkboard and string. I am just curious like everyone else. Um, and, And so that's what happens. We just get chattering and we're like, should we do a Harry and Meghan thing? It's kind of feels like, are we sick of these people? Do we love these people? What was that? Like, what was that media sort of blitz, you know? Um, 
blitz was probably the wrong word for that. But it's the idea that just, like, <laughs> helping people understand, like, what was that? What was that OnlyFans thing? What was that, you know, Harry and Meghan thing? The movies thing is a good example where every single person I told I was doing it said, oh, that's weird. But you know what? Me and my brother and my uncle, like, we were arguing about going to the movie. And then they would, like, go on this rant about <laughs> why they were or were not going to the movies. Mm-hmm. And that's usually, to me, the sign of a good episode, that, like, people stop talking about the episode and they just get, like, carried away talking about the topic. They kind of continue the conversation on their own. Yeah, I feel like all the topics in your show have, like, a, now that you mention it, I do have an opinion about that yeah, thing. Exactly. You know? <laughs> exactly. That's the goal. But, you know, of course it's terrifying. I'm like, am I going to run out of ideas? Like, what's happening here? <laughs> I'm, I'm really scared. Uh, and I think it helps that, like, I was always sort of terrible at beats, and I used to work on a show called All Things Considered. So mm-hmm. I am an omnivore. I'm voracious intellectually. And anytime I have to sit anywhere too long, I start to get antsy. And I start to be like, yeah, but I really do want to talk about why the pros don't do slam dunks anymore. Like, what is yeah. that? Like, like everyone is so excited talking about the slam dunk contest, but no one gave me an adequate reason why nobody was doing it anymore. And I'm sure there's some complex, interesting reason why. And that's the kind of thing that will sort of send me down the rabbit hole of an, of an idea. Mm-hmm. Um... That's so interesting, too, you know, um, bringing up, you know, the all things considered um, NPR era. Um, the people always joke about, you know, like the NPR voice um, and sort of like how you're presented on that show. Have you felt like you've had, have you felt like you've either unlearned sort of how you used to speak on all things considered or yeah. do you find yourself more casual now? Um Well, it's interesting because I came up in the generation that was still shadowing the sort of initial NPR crowd. So, like, I'm Mm -hmm. sitting next to Robert Siegel. I'm sitting next to Melissa Block. I'm sitting next to these people that have, like, the voice that everyone's talking about. Mm -hmm. And obviously, to some extent, I have it or else I wouldn't have gotten as far as I did. And Mm -hmm. this is my voice. This is how I was talking when I was, like, 10 and 11. Trust me, it was unnerving for everyone involved. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So... But as I was doing the job, podcasting starts to come into existence, right? And Mm -hmm. it brings with it a more casual, it reintroduces a kind of casual approach that NPR, I think, in its early days stayed away from because it was trying not to sound like commercial radio, right? Mm -hmm. NPR is coming up when commercial radio is sort of wobbling a little bit and going through consolidation. They want to sound different. And at the time, they thought they sounded pretty casual, frankly. That's something people don't... um, (laughs) <laughs> they were trying to move away from the Edward, the Edward Murrow years, you know? Mm-hmm. So NPR thought it was being casual, and then Next Generation is like, you're not casual enough, and now here we are. I would say the difference is that fundamentally NPR is a really wonderfully curated and edited experience. It is mm-hmm. about pristine editing. The sound is pristine. Um, the the choices of people they speak to are interesting and it's edited so well, it's produced so well. But I'd turn in a script and, you know, like 15 people would rewrite it. And mm-hmm. I think some of the mm-hmm. things that people are hearing now in my writing and talking and the and being what you consider casual is like, is me. This is actually how I talk and think and digress. Um, and it's just like a tiny bit less curated. Mm-hmm. By the way, I think we... 
are ripe for a return to the Edward R. Murrow years. I want to hear the cigar smoke and I want to see, <laughs> you know, <laughs> someone leaning over a microphone, eyebrows just pointed at the ground. I know. Um, well, I mean, I keep trying to pitch a radio show to CNN. I'm like, it'll be Don Imus, but not terrible. Like, I'll have a mic, I'll have headphones. Like, if all those guys could be on TV, why can't I be on TV? So, yeah, there's, I'm, I'm going to bring it back. I'm going to bring back uh, the audio to TV. <laughs> Something you brought up in several interviews um, is this feeling you've had throughout your career of imposter syndrome, which to me feels crazy because you have such a traditional, as you just said, voracious inquisitiveness. So I feel like you would be almost like the engine that would run any journalistic unit wherever you go. And I'm wondering where that came from and how you find yourself breaking out of it. Oh, um, I'm a black girl from Massachusetts, <laughs> so I think that, that would have been baked in, you know, yeah, I'm sure. an immigrant. <laughs> uh, and it just comes from being an outsider, right? So much of when you look into kind of what imposter syndrome um originally was envisioned, sort of how they thought about how it played out. It's just when you're on truly from the outside of a community. And it's very easy to be outside of a community in the Boston area um, if you didn't grow up there, et cetera. So there was that, that was a strike. And then once I started moving in these journalism spaces, you know, I was generally the youngest person. I was generally the brownest person. I was a lot of times just one of one or two or three women. Um, and so we had a different set generationally of like references and ideas and approaches to things and sort of the people I would find interesting, they wouldn't, not because those weren't interesting mm. people, but they weren't totally familiar with it. When I was coming up at NPR, I remember doing a story about um, – Fred Thompson, who at the time was a Tennessee politician who was running for president, and for exactly three minutes and 32 seconds, everyone thought he had a chance. Um, narrator, he did not have a chance. Um, <laughs> and I wrote in a story that he entered the room like a celebutant. And to me at the time, celebutant was like, a word <laughs> people said on the internet. And the editor was like, what does this mean? People are not going to know what this means. Like, I think we should take this out. Like, these mm. tiny, tiny things would become, like, battles, like editorial battles. And so I sort of perfected the art of jamming my scripts with as many weirdo comments and references and things as I could, because I was like, well, they can't take them all out. And I think there's a lot of people out there who operate the same way. Like, I actually don't think I'm all that rare. Um, if you look across the landscape now, I think so many creative people in podcasting are that person that didn't quite fit. And now they have found a home, you know what I mean, sharing their ideas. And that's what draws people to them. I can, if I can boringly sidebar you for a second, I do occasionally monologues on Jimmy Kimmel where I talk about gay stuff. And, and That's a flex. I, yeah, and I... <laughs> and, Just so we're clear. <laughs> one, one time we did a whole thing about like, I don't know what the... But I, I called somebody snatched or something. And right. the straight head writers had to like exchange glances. And it is this moment of, I'm not trying to revolutionize anything by using a word I hear literally every day. But I have to like push it to this level where you understand. It's just a very, I understand what you're saying. It's a very like strange moment when you're taking something that's just common knowledge to you. And then suddenly it's 
unbelievably shocking information to whomever is yeah, putting it on the air. Yeah, or they have to be like, that's when you suddenly understand when someone says to you, like, well, our audience may or not, and you're like, who's our? Who's your audience? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, now mm-hmm. we're telling the truth about who you're talking to and why and what you think might offend them or not. Um, the flip side, I'll just prepare you for this because it's going to come for you one day when you age, is some young person will walk up to you and go, hey, uh, so do you know what this word means? And then you'll be like, yay or nay. And then they'll turn around to their friends like, oh, okay, they know. Like, <laughs> we can use that word. <laughs> the, old, the old person said snatch. And you're just like, oh, my God. You, like, stare into the middle distance like, oh, this I knew this day would come, but not so quickly. Not so quickly. <laughs> uh, one thing that's so interesting to me is, one, when you look at your IMDb, um, oh my God! Why would you do that? I can't even uh, believe I have one. That is what we do here. What is on uh, there? Like random well, cameos well, on Adult Animation. Yeah. So it's so <laughs> hilarious that it says it's it. So IMDb always has the known for like at the top, and it's like maybe one of your most popular uh, credits. Uh, and for you, it says known for. Bojack, Bojack Horseman. Horseman. First of yes. all, that show is the bomb. Yes. <laughs> I, I love that show. Um. And that just brought me to the thing that, um, yes, I feel like so many anchors um, at this point, you know, have IMDb credits because it's always, um, it's commonplace now to see someone, you know, like Anderson Cooper playing himself in a movie uh, or something like that. Um, Is that something that you find fun and interesting? Were you just like a BoJack Horseman fan or were you like, um, (laughs) or is this something that you'd also love to do? Would you love to be in, you know, like, Independence you know, Day 3. Yeah. Being like, the aliens are attacking. <laughs> I would. I would if they're, uh, yeah, if they need a jet fighter. I have to be honest with you. I am not a big fan of performing yourself in a news setting in fiction. Mm-hmm. I don't actually think that is what I'm going to do mm-hmm. ever. Um, so I actually did that in the show Work in Progress, which is amazing. But in it, it was like a dream sequence, and I appeared, like, at the kitchen table with someone and talked to them in a very personal way. And that Mm -hmm. was on the border for me. You know, I feel really like my credibility is all I have. And it's, Mm -hmm. in this environment, super-duper fragile. Mm -hmm. And I really try and avoid anything that feels a little bit celebrity-seeking or... Mm -hmm. Um, making me or what I do a joke or part of a fake depiction of how our job works because people already have such dumb ideas about how we do our jobs, frankly. Mm -hmm. Um, It does not improve when I see it, you know, on film. So while I'm I'm a huge fan of that kind of thing, like when I see my coworkers do it, I remember one scene, I think it was like Daniel Shore in The Game or something, and I was just like, oh, this is incredible. For me, I feel really uncomfortable doing it. Um, And I think that's probably why you've noticed I have done stuff that's like animation or, you know, something Mm -hmm. that's like an Easter egg for people who are going to get a kick out of hearing, like, Mm -hmm. the voice in a different context. Now, your idea of not being, you know, like, celebrity-seeking and not wanting, you know, to perform yourself— you do have an interest in performance, though, it feels like. You know, because I, don't. I mean, oh, you don't at all. Okay. No. Mm. I hate performing myself. I hate TikTok. Like, mm. this is, <laughs> I'm like, wait, I perform for billionaires in an algorithm and they don't pay me? <laughs> what the hell deal is this? This is trash. Um, 
it's the same thing with Instagram. There's this whole, this pressure to be not just the best version of yourself, but a commodi- commoditized and um, and uh, kind of hyper polished branded version of yourself is really quite. Um, awful. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like I'm not an entertainer and I'm not paid to entertain. And, mm-hmm. we, and, and what I do is not entertaining. Now, if you have some laughs along the way, if you, um, if I can bring something to you that feels additive and add value to you understanding the human experience, I'm all for it. But like doing a dance, you know what I mean? <laughs> like just... For the likes, like, this is a picture of me on vacation. I don't love it. I don't Mm. love it. I think it's great for actual entertainers. And the pressure to do it as a news person has grown so much. You know, it's Mm -hmm. really intense. And it's been one of the harder parts for me in terms of coming to television is, you know, being asked, like, well, your brand X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, I'm not a brand. I'm not a product. That's very hard right now to say to anyone. I just want to say, I want to go back to what you said about not performing as yourself in like uh, movies or TV or something. There is such a slight difference between watching, say, like, like the host of The Tonight Show appear in a movie and then like a real life journalist. It's like, you guys aren't the same thing. And like, I shouldn't be getting like this, like endorphin from recognizing this person behaving like they're being a journalist right now. I've never thought about that before. It's it's like probably innocuous, um, but I do, I give myself pretty strict guardrails in general um, because I really, I really want to stay focused. And I, I'm realizing as I've made this transition into a different space, it is incredibly easy to suddenly be focused on yourself just because of the way kind of TV production works, the way celebrity works, the way advertising in a way works, right? Like you guys are having me on as a guest to talk about the podcast and you feel like it will appeal to your audience, et cetera. Um, And in the past, I just didn't do any of that because it was like, well, why would you talk to me? You know, like you should just talk to whatever the story is about. And I've sort of come around to the idea of like, I can shine my light on these other voices if I take advantage of it. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, so now everyone might listen to this podcast full of total, weird, interesting, wild, divergent voices and ideas because they heard me with you. And that's valuable. You know, every audience you reach out to is valuable. And, and I wanted to get out of my own echo chamber, so to speak, right? I wanted to get out of the NPR bubble. Mm-hmm. So here I am. You can tell me if it's working. <laughs> I be- I, in my I opinion, you know. did it. Every yeah. day, I'm just like, what am I doing? What am I doing? I find the concept, you know, of, you know, audiences even learning about something new, like, so interesting. Not just, you know, like, people we book for Keep It, you know, but it's just like, um, you know, reading like a magazine, you know, reading like Vulture or something, you know, like, it might be like someone because I'm reading it in general, like someone who I'm not necessarily interested in, I look at that and then you look up, you know, the book that they wrote or something like that. I'm just constantly intrigued by how people process things that aren't necessarily for them or they might not know were for them. I guess it goes back to you saying, you know, like um, when someone would be like, this isn't what our audience is, you know? But it's it's so interesting because I feel like maybe it's, you know, being 
black, maybe it's, you know, like me and Lewis being gay, you know, it's, you know, it's like we, um, I feel like we are constantly consuming culture and media that isn't necessarily for us. Uh, exactly. The people making it aren't thinking about us when they're making it. Definitely. But for some reason, we are constantly consuming it and intrigued by it. Yeah. And there's so much amazing programming now that does appeal to affinity audiences, so to speak. And and some of my friends, as we were coming up, we would have this debate, you know, like, oh, is it better for me to work on the Black show that they're making? Is it better for me to work on this, the big national show, but like have to beat my head against the wall every day to pitch a story about other communities? And we've all taken sort of different paths. Um, like Sam Sanders is a great example, you know, mm. of somebody who's just like really reaching out to an audience that identifies with him along with a, a national audience. Um, and I I kind of have to admit, I just took the harder path. Like I've just spent years and years muscling my way to the table so that the next person doesn't have to have the dumb fight. You know, and the next person doesn't have to make the explanation and mentoring people. And um, even now coming to CNN, like CNN is a kind of a headline news place. So mm-hmm. if I'm going to be value added, then I'm going to bring you behind the headline and just slow things down and make something complementary to what they do. Like I try and put a lot of thought into how do I talk about people? Like you'll notice on the pod, I never say anyone's race ever. Mm. but the guests are super diverse. Um, But, like, in my old job, you would just routinely hear all the time, just, like, so-and-so is black, so-and-so is right. And it's like, I get that it's radio, but come on. You know, like, context clues matter, and also sometimes (laughs) it doesn't matter. You know, if I bring on a business owner and they're Latino, they're not a Latino business owner. Like, they're a business owner. Um, If someone comes on and their pronouns are they and them— I'm just referring to it. There's no used to be, was known as, like, blah, blah, blah. And a lot of times people tell you in the course of the interview, like, who they are. They just say it. So it's this stuff that's so minor, but to me is trying to be what I want to see in the news business. Mm-hmm. I just want to say that, by the way, you could also sell the concept of the dumb fight as a podcast right in the room. I it think really we could all- <laughs> is. Everyone in every office has one fight that's the dumb fight. And it's ha- it happens over and over again with different, like, Christmas ornaments hanging off it. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, this time the fight's about X. So it's like, no, at the end of the day, it's still about this thing, whatever it is, um, generational or racial or like a class thing. Like, I just feel like every newsroom certainly has that. Yeah. The idea, too, of people telling you who they are in conversation is basically just the sort of concept of reading in general, right? You know, I feel like now since we we get so many like adaptations of like classic books or things, you get people online upset that like, this isn't, you know, this person was written as white or, like, this is how, you know, like, I perceive this person. But I'm just, you know, like, a lot of classic literature or things that you would, that I grew up reading, it's, it doesn't open up with, you know, like, um, Gatsby was, had white pale skin, you know, and, like, Brad, here's something, you know, you read something and there are no descriptions like that. And you can assume that maybe, you know, like, they were, you could assume they were writing about white people because, yeah. you know, you know um, Fitzgerald and, you know, Hemingway, like they're writing about white people. But if you're reading it, you're reading it and telling yourself a story and you're not being sort of boxed into um, 
a journey immediately. Yeah. And for the, I think for, I still have people who will say like, oh my goodness, I didn't know you were black. Like, oh my goodness, I'm so surprised. <laughs> Happily or not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but like, to me, that's good. You know, like, mm-hmm. I'm bomb. You should love me no matter what. And mm-hmm. like, let's go along on this ride together. And mm-hmm. it's really hard to talk like that in this day and age, I think. It's just, like, far more profitable to be like, I need to speak to my audience because no one is paying attention to them and blah, blah, blah. Whereas I'm like, there's also a way to center the people you care about in a discussion that hasn't been done that way before. And, mm-hmm. like, maybe you have that power. Maybe you have that skill. Oh, I get you. I mean, I grew up with the name Ira. I love surprising people. <laughs> surprising people with the fact that I'm black. <laughs> you don't look like the Gershwins. What's yeah, happening? exactly. Yeah. Every job interview at high school and college. <laughs> uh, Audie Cornish, thank you so much for being here. And your podcast is so fun. And by the way, uh, a snap. It's like a half hour and I learn about something. So I you can definitely pop pop like out. short yeah. podcasts. Spread the word. Yeah. People no. who are doing it for an hour and ten. Stop. Yeah. Oh, you think okay. we you think we stop at an hour ten? Something's wrong with us <laughs> yes. over here. So like, yeah. I just I'm like I listen in between dealing with my kids, and I said that was the one mm-hmm. thing I said to myself. I was like, this needs to be mom sized, so mm-hmm. that you listen on the walking the dog, you listen whatever. Like I'm still that NPR girl in a way. I'm still like thinking about you all listening. I see you all listening um, mm-hmm. in my mind, and I'm making it for these imaginary people out there that I can see. And um, I'm so glad you're all interested and along for the ride. Mm. No, a half an hour is very ideal. It's like the bold and the beautiful, you know? Like 30 minutes. (laughs) 30 minutes in the middle of the afternoon, okay? Hey, (laughs) I love it. I love it. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, God, what a pleasure. No, it's it's great. And like I said, I have followed you guys for a long time and love the pod. God, we're so sorry. Jesus. (laughs) Jump ship at any time. Because remember, at the end of the day of doing sad news, like, I really want to get out of my own head. I really Mm want to listen to something else. Um, And so... It's right up my alley. Like, I appreciate mm-hmm. what you do. That is yeah. unbelievably co- complimentary. Yeah. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, we need yeah. it. Trust me. It's like dark times, so keep it up. Listen to The Assignment every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. When we're back, Kelly Ripa. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream is a total chocolate game changer. We start with unbelievably creamy dark chocolate ice cream. Then we add different chocolate treats like chocolate cookies, chocolate cake, or chocolate brownies to make four decadent chocolate flavors. Because sometimes the thing that pairs best with chocolate (laughs) is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. Black Stories, Black Troops. 
is a celebration of blackness from NPR and how I live my life every day. Oh, I'm glad to bear witness to it. (laughs) Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of a struggle. It sounds like you at Coachella. I'm already tuned in. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective, from Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations. There's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. Black perspectives have always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Here are a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as very nuanced and black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Doesn't the black experience sound like a three-disc Prince album we never got? Someone check the vault, please. <laughs> Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Kelly and Ryan are dead. <laughs> Thank you, Tom Stoppard. Oh, no. <laughs> Kelly and Ryan is dead. Long live Kelly and Mark. Now that Kelly is working with her husband, Mark Consuelos, do we finally have a host that is not threatened by the power Kelly Ripa brings? Oh, her, for once. You know, with her luminous blonde hair um, and just effervescent personality. One of my favorite lines ever on Billy on the Street. I did not write this. This precedes my time. <laughs> I think Billy is talking to Andy Cohen. And he says, and you're friends with Kelly Ripa and his lovely wife, Mark Consuelos. And something about that makes me <laughs> scream. <laughs> it's so good. Uh, I have always been a fan of Kelly Ripa. Sure. Imagine not being a fan of Kelly Ripa. She is just shows up, is ready, is immediately guileless, to the point, engages your guests, and she'll be like the nastiest person on screen if she has to be. <laughs> uh, and I think what I think that maybe like, you know, listen, I was never an ABC soap person um, so much. Like I mostly watched One Life to Live in college. But, you know, she was on All My Children with Mark. Yes. That's sort of where they met. Um, and I think that, you know, growing up on like a soap opera and being a teenager on it and having your, you know, love interest be there who then becomes your husband in real life. I think that's also why so many people of a generation older than us are like attached to Kelly Ripa. Yeah, right. I think also just like you can jump into her show and whole vibe at any point. It's never like you're missing anything about Kelly Ripa. You could start watching her today and just be like, oh, this is somebody who's extremely relatable. And there's no, um, she's not attempting to be cool in any way. She's never above any conversation or behind. I would almost compare her to someone like, Gail King, who like mm. just knows who everybody is, just like mm. you know, like if like I'm Gail King went up to um, if you know who Denny Directo is, he's on Entertainment Tonight, and uh, he's just like this like gay, super giddy, awesome guy journalist, and she came up to him and knew exactly who he was. She just like some there's certain types of people who just want to know everybody, and Kelly Ripa is one of those people. Who is Kelly's Oprah? Meaning, as in who inspired her? Well, no, well, you know, Gail. Is it Gail? Gail and Oprah. Oh, I see. You oh, know. gosh. Well, would that be Andy Cohen? 
Maybe. I I don't know if I want to think about Andy Cohen being Oprah. Right. I mean, like <laughs> that, I mean, but he does. No, you know she, what? He does have a lot of intense sit downs, like Oprah. Yes. You know, I maintain I maintain that Andy Cohen is my favorite interviewer when it comes to legendary <laughs> actors or actresses. By the way, speaking of, we're getting into a conversation of what makes a host interesting. We did not get into really into the death of Barbara Walters when she passed away. Mm. I was watching old interviews with her recently. I'm sorry, Barbara routinely dropped the ball. She was like, she was like so surface level or like so asking like an obvious question or so just like I, I never got the sense that she had like her own real insights. And for example, she was talking to Betty Davis once. And by the way, Betty Davis gives you false hope about the coolness of old celebrities because she is so fucking funny all the time. It makes no <laughs> sense. Like she was barely a writer anyway. Um, but um, Barbara Walters goes, in my favorite movie of yours, All About Eve, you're torn between your career and your husband. No, she's not. What the fuck are you talking about? It's about, it's in the title. It's all about Eve. What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb and say Barbara Walters has never seen All About Eve. That's how I feel about it. And I feel like someone like Kelly Ripa is just genuinely interested in who she is talking to, no matter what it is, which I, we were just talking to Audie Cornish. That's a rare quality, you know, even among so-called journalists, even among, uh, uh, you know, genteel talk show hosts. Yeah. I mean, I feel like we, you know, have at least the privilege of, you know, deciding who we're going to talk to. You know, it's a weekly podcast. You know, it's not, right. we're not on Good Morning America. You're not on the talk. You know, you're not on a late night show where someone, you know, is booked just because they're hot, you know? And it's right. got to be, I always find people who are interested in other people so interesting because, um, I mean, I don't know, going, going back to, you know, when I did Colbert um, to talk about Keep It, he, the fact that he, you know, was like, had read up on what it was, like had listened to an episode or something, you know, was like interested in who I was, me, this person. I'm like, there's no reason Stephen Colbert should know who the fuck I am, you know? Yeah. And it's, <laughs> this is a fraud. This is right. a fraud. Uh, and we joked about that on the show too, you know? And um, I just always think about, you you know you're a really good interview with a person who is um, just interested in people. If you can make an interview interesting with someone who now has their first starring role on a TV show or is featured in a movie. Because yeah. those people, it's usually like they've never been interviewed before in this capacity. Right. So they kind of um, don't know the rules of what's out of bounds either. Not that they'll yeah. say the wrong thing, but like they'll bring up stuff. They'll, you know, yeah. they'll be excited to chat. Maybe they'll have a funny story. Maybe it's something, but you know, it's like, those are always the people. It's like, cause how do you make someone who nobody tuning in knows who the fuck this person is? Really? Right. How do you make them interesting or how do you get them? How do you ask them the right questions to help them be interesting? You know? And that's why I brought up Colbert. Cause I felt like he asked the interesting questions to just get me talking about pop culture and making jokes about it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what an interviewer has to do. You have to be sort of interested in someone as a person or just interested in people in general to get them to talk about things. And yes, Barbara Walters never really was interested in what people wanted to say about things. More often than not, I feel like people were resharing clips too of like, you know, her being just sort of like awful, like the, like the Catherine Hepburn. You know, right. also and Catherine Hepburn absolutely decimating her ass. Yeah, it's it's so crazy how hard Barbara goes down on that interview. <laughs> uh, but it it was a lot of the interviews were her sort of sharing her rude opinions about things to the people she was interviewing. 
Right. And, and doing it just kind of with a straight face and seeing, you know, what they would yeah. say in response. We, I mean, a talk show we've talked about a lot on this show um, that I still think is the gold standard exactly in the regards you're talking about is the Rosie O'Donnell show. Because Mm -hmm. for instance, take how obsessed she was with Broadway. She would have Broadway actors on. And of course, half of America does not know what, you know, at the time, what stomp was or what, what any of those, you're a good man, Charlie Brown. Like she basically introduced Kristen Chenoweth to the rest of the world, who, by the way, great interview. If you Mm. have listened to that, keep it episode. She was a plus. Um, But it's like, you need the confidence or what I like in an interviewer on a talk show is they have the confidence to know that their enthusiasm is an amazing conduit for other people to express their enthusiasm. And Mm. I think that's a quality I really usually just associate with women. I don't really think of too many, like I I work for Jimmy Kimmel. I think he gets people excited, but Mm. it's not really an, an ebullience thing. He knows everything. So mm. he, he has a really good memory and he can tap into people that way. But like growing up, man, like the, the Rosie O'Donnell, just like her obsessiveness, her, uh, I'm going to bring up that weird movie you were in. I'm going to bring up that person, you know, oh, we have this mm-hmm. mutual friend. Okay. Let's move it along. It's just like the, the energy is what's so exciting in interviews like that. Well, and it's so funny that you brought up, you know, people being afraid to be, um, quote unquote cringe earlier. Yeah. Right. You know, cause I feel like. Rosie O'Donnell, you watch those episodes, you might call that cringe now, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I remember when, you know, we used to get comments online with people being like, why are they so excited about these people they're interviewing sometimes? Or like, you know, telling them like, oh, you're great in this. It's like, why is it a bad thing to be fans of people, you know? Or to be right. interested in what you're talking about because Rosie O'Donnell interviewing people that she was actually interested in was more fun to watch because she's coming from an insight of like, I care about this thing and I want you to care about it too. You know? And this is something I think a lot about in regards to whenever I watch like an awards red carpet and you see like e-correspondents who it's their job to be literally enthusiastic for everybody. There's not, mm-hmm. their job description is not to be critical. So they have to figure out this other way to seem human while mm-hmm. talking to famous people and not just seem like they're being kind of steamrolled by the PR machine that's led that celebrity to being there. You know who's and so fucking good? Laverne Cox. But now, I was going to say, I feel like Laverne Cox could stand to be a little bit saucier with these people, but you tell mm. me. The, well, you know what? I feel like the ones that go viral with Laverne, I feel like she's saucy with people she knows. She knows a yeah. lot of people, too, in like a Kelly Ripa um sort of way, I feel like the people that Laverne knows, she gets, like, more personable with them, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, you know who I do love are uh, Johnny Weir and Tara Lipinski. When mm. they meet anybody, it's like they don't delete the part of their brain that is that that has, like, a slightly loaded joke mm. or a slight, you know, their own perspective. I, I think I, if I'm watching somebody give an interview, I need to have the sense that they've had opinions about this before and that they're not just there to appease. And I, and I know the feeling as we're sitting here, like we want people to feel comfortable. So mm-hmm. you want to be somewhat comforting, but at the same time, you have to be bringing this other brain into the situation too. You have to be bringing a little, a sense of, but everybody out there has opinions. So I need to share mine too. You know? Yeah. I feel like the ones I hate the most are always someone who's on the red carpet and it's like, now, now you said something very funny that people were talking about, like, online the other day. You know, it's like, 
I don't know. I'm thinking about like when Omar Apollo made um, the joke about when someone asked him like if he was gay online, and he says, "Yeah, mm. I suck dick." Right. <laughs> um, and I think it was like I don't know, like Mark Malkin or something like was asking him like on the red carpet about that, and it was just like it. it those things always feel so like older person trying to find out this younger person is cool or like just trying to like be in you know it doesn't feel natural to me that's also an interesting situation where a a, like a gay journalist is trying to zero in on the gay space that Mm -hmm. like this interview it's like it's like because i'm gay can i ask this question that other people can't ask and i you know it's just like a fascinating question you know because he does tend to ask gay questions of gay celebrities more yeah. Um, which is interesting because we it's there I like when those do um happen because we rarely see that on a red carpet too you know right 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 you know um Bringing I'm Rosie to think of- O'Donnell by the way yeah. there was a clip that was I forget who shared it maybe Danny Pellegrino or someone else shared it but um, it almost certainly was him yes <laughs> it was this clip of Rosie O'Donnell Celine Dion and Richard Simmons doing a cooking segment and it is one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. Because also, to put those three personalities together was insane. And it's 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 Richard Simmons doing a segment about like low fat food too. And Rosie O'Donnell's like, I don't want to eat this low fat shit. And it's like trying to get Celine Dion to eat it. But whenever Rosie's like, I don't like this or I don't want to eat that, like Richard like takes the food, he throws it on the floor. It's like, okay, then we're not eating that. <laughs> also, all three of those people in their own way are like true foghorns. I can't believe <laughs> you got them all together. Also, Celine is such a crazy person to put because you know Celine eats like one out of every. 17,000 food items. You know, that's like a very strict diet. She did some interview once where she was like, no dairy products, no... And she went through all 90 of the things she doesn't eat. Uh, that's my favorite genre of celebrities talking about the um, their diets. Of course, I mean, the thing Angela Bassett did was yes. just talking about her Ezekiel bread. <laughs> that interview. <laughs> also... That rant about what she eats and doesn't eat, I mean, it was almost like iambic pentameter what she was going through. <laughs> like, to the beat, she had this down. Um, but, uh, man, the era of Richard Simmons on a talk show, there, there are only, like, two or three real wild card guests where you would just bring them on. And, look, I'm sure one day, I know we had, like, the Richard Simmons renaissance a couple years ago with that podcast, but I still feel like all the stories have not come out about how Richard Simmons would go on a show and just grope half the staff. I'm sorry. He was, <laughs> something is not right about what was going on there. And believe me, I grew up on Sweat into the Oldies. I love Richard Simmons. Yes. But something was so uncontained about what he brought as a guest and just as a person. And I don't know that talk shows can recover from whatever he brought. That's also an era of a celebrity that doesn't exist anymore. Just that kind of celebrity who will appear and then, um, oh, you know what I'm doing? Um, You're like, I'm just going to start doing jumping jacks in the middle of this interview. (laughs) Right. It's also like, because the kind of celebrity he was and what he represented, you know, he had like VHS tapes he would put Mm -hmm. out. That's so now dominated in an influencer space. And that's Mm -hmm. like a, you know, you have to be cool or you have to be put together. It's not about being... Zane, like who is zany anymore? You have like a Billy Porter type, I guess, but that's even those that's feel it. more controlled. And it's like, 
it's less chaotic, for lack of a better term. You know, like yeah. a Billy Porter, like a Sam Smith moment, too. You know, it's it's less like, I don't know what's going to happen in this interview. I mean, when Billy Porter's in an interview, you sort of know what's going to happen. You know, like he's going to look like one of the furniture pieces from Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, yeah, a, a couple of moments, a, a couple of lines where he ends in a scream. Yeah, you know. and you know, talking about like this industry didn't, this industry didn't want me as a black gay faggot, and now I'm here, Ryan Murphy. And there we go. <laughs> right. All right. And, and and we'll throw it a break. Yes. Yeah. But there's there's less chaos. I miss chaos. I feel like I miss chaos, and I miss you know the interviewers who could handle chaos. I guess. Right, and I think someone like Kelly Ripa knows she's hosting a very controlled environment that's not chaotic. So she's introducing snippets of her own personality in a, I don't want to say chaotic way, but in a, you know, rambunctious way. So I think mm-hmm. that is kind of what we need going forward in order to make this format of show remain interesting. Speaking of morning chaos... I wish celebrities still did this, uh, specifically pop stars. I miss the era of, like, Nicole Scherzinger, Fergie, like, in leather pants, writhing on a stage at 8 a.m. in front of a crowd in New York. Ugh. I mean, your lips to God's ears. (laughs) Fergie and that performance. We've brought this up before on the show, but as you know, she did a performance of, I actually don't remember what. Barracuda, uh, which was her cover of Hearts Barracuda, which was on the, I believe, Shrek three soundtrack maybe two shrek heads please stay out of my dms it's one of those it's one of those okay yeah but she ends up doing one-handed cartwheels and uh, you know in an in a debosian fashion we don't know where this is coming from or why it's occurring really (laughs) but people are just standing astounded and it's like it's it's so much that you can't react at all that kind of thing it is amazing that that woman gave us three iconic live performances. That the national anthem recording. Yes. And also singing Live and Let Die. And there's like a cord uh, attached to her hand and she's being flown around the stage. It is truly mesmerizing. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, like flying around the stage, that's something, you know, Pink does with some Elon, but when Fergie does it, you know, I'm calling the cops. It's a little crazy. The Duchess, still an iconic album, no skips. And also, I thought she was a real Duchess. <laughs> Even though in the title, it's spelled with a T because it's about yes. Dutch like marijuana. Yes. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people don't get that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you maybe just get it now? <laughs> Uh, maybe so. Uh, which is weird because I'm always explaining to people that Rihanna's album Loud is called Loud because it's a reference to marijuana. I actually did not know that. But as you know, marijuana and I don't agree with each other. So I And, and I would never agree with being in a room where you're on marijuana. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> you thought Reefer Madness was scary? But by the way, uh, last note on this conversation, I do thank Drew Barrymore for bringing mm. us um, a, 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 an She's unhinged chaotic. quality. Yes, that's unhinged. Like when she did that <laughs> Megan thing and Allison Williams sat there with her hands on her face like Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone, that was frightening for everybody. And we need people 
to be a little bit scary. <laughs> There's always something so funny about a celebrity who's part of something that captures the zeitgeist, but it's like, okay, every interview they do now is going to be like someone doing something weird and a reference to that. Like, yeah, right. Allison Williams is, is never going to get away from Megan references now. No, which that's a scary place to be. That's its own horror movie. Good for her, you know, because she, she, she's been a part of a lot of things, to be honest. You know, she probably prefers this to um, talking about the rimming scene on Girls or, you know, Peter Pan, if you remember that. Oh, my God, Peter Pan, where she looked like, you know, the cutest six-foot twink that ever lived. <laughs> All right, well, back to what we initially talked about. I'm intrigued to see what Kelly and Mark is actually like as a show, you know? It's interesting, it, like, saying a couple, like, a uh, husband and wife, like, hosting a show. Yeah, how much th- can they possibly reveal about their real lives in that space? I hope it devolves to a Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf-type bitter spat thing we get to see every so often. Well, no, that would be live with Sarah Jessica Parker and Matthew Broderick. <laughs> <laughs> and Imagine- he gets to be hand-packed and she gets to be alpha. Love it. <laughs> would love to see it. I can't believe they did Plaza Suite together. They were in the same place at the same time for several right. days in a row. Shocking. Also, they might still be doing Plaza Suite. Who knows? <laughs> Uh, all right. When we're back, we are joined by the Swedish sensation, Zara Larson. Tired of fighting your kids to make their bed? Say hello to Betty's. The unique design lets your kids make their bed with just a zip. Our patented bedding includes everything you need, a fitted sheet, top sheet, and comforter in one seamless piece that zips together. Kids love the feeling of accomplishment when they can make their bed by themselves every day. Make your mornings easier and visit Bettys.com. That's B-E-D-D-Y-S dot com. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream is a total chocolate game changer. We start with unbelievably creamy dark chocolate ice cream. Then we add different chocolate treats like chocolate cookies, chocolate cake, or chocolate brownies to make four decadent chocolate flavors. Because sometimes the thing that pairs best with chocolate (laughs) is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Today, we are talking to an industry powerhouse who's been blowing minds since she was 10 years old, a Swedish sensation. Her fourth album drops this year, and the lead single, Can't Tame Her, is what I'd call an absolute banger. Welcome to Keep It, Zara Larson. 
Hey. Hi. Uh, Hi. It's so nice to have you here. And I think me and Lewis's first question is, why are Swedish people just so good at pop music? Why? Like, what what's is going it? On over there? Why are you better than us? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. I get it a lot. Um, so to answer <laughs> all of the Swedes, um, I would say, you know, there's probably a million different reasons why. If we're being like serious with it, I think one of the reasons is that we get like we have a social security like network going on. Um, I think you can chase your dreams and, um, you know, put some time into art and what you feel like is fulfilling for your soul and not be scared of like ending up on the street because you can't pay rent or like can't buy food because you would get funding from the state. And, um, I think also I'm lucky to be born into like this era because so many people before me have kind of paved the way. And I think once one person is doing it and then like another person is doing it, all of the people that will come after them will have an easier time. That's just how it works in the world. So um, I think we've just been really lucky. And then is it the way we speak? Is it the language? Because we're not like very poetic i think when people think about good pop songs it's usually like the melodies and like production and it's all you know it's pop and it's fun but it still has a little bit of like depth to it i would say like in the melody because we're a little sad up there we're sad we're sad it's very dark so (laughs) even though it's pop there's still a feeling of like melancholy which i think really brings out like dimension in in pop music i don't know yeah you're totally right when i listen when the songs i'm thinking about there is it's this combination of what i would call like the like perfect rhythms and then also a lingering sort of poetic i guess melancholy is the only word for it like there's 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 a push and pull there that makes it interesting and and better than what we do here thank you yeah (laughs) You said that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yeah. I mean, even the best, like, ABBA songs, you know, are... They're sad. They are sad. You listen to it and you're like, oh, my God. Like, that's not happy at all. Um, It does have some, like, melancholy to it. And I think we're not that happy. (laughs) I mean, we, like, we're good with, I guess, the sense of, like, living standards. I think we're all happy, but... We we get sad. We get down with the sadness, I think. I just think in general, the best pop has like, there's some irony layered into how it sounds compared yeah. to what is being said. Like, I don't know if you're a fan of the song Walking on Broken Glass by Annie Lennox, but in that song, uh, you know, she's, I'm walking on broken glass, like literally proclaiming I'm in terrible pain, but the melody is so banging. It's like, like what yeah, are we, ac- what's yeah. actually being said here? It's so interesting, you know? No, it's so true. It's so true. It's like those crying on the dance floor. Totally. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Robin, okay. queen that. Right, right. Robin really has done something special in that mm-hmm. world of I'm, I'm, my, my life could not be worse and this beat could not be yeah. better. <laughs> Exactly. Now, uh, speaking of your new song, how long does it take to polish a song like this into banger status? Because when I'm listening to this, it really feels smoothed to a just an incredible finish. Like it must have taken. (laughs) And how much did it sound like exactly what you had conceived when you were writing it? 
No, it sounds pretty much exactly the same. And I don't know, sometimes it's just magic happens. I mean, I wrote it with M&E-K, who was one of my absolute like top, top writers in the world. I think he's like so incredibly talented. And I'm we go way back Uzo. too. I mean, I love Uzo. Uzo yeah, we're yes. to death. He's incredible. And he's also a very funny person. And I love him. And, um, you know, we we wrote my first ever song that I wrote together. I mean, he's, you know, he's been doing it for a while. Um, mm -hmm. But my song that I ever wrote was Never Forget You. And uh, he was like fully confident in that room. So that felt great. And ever since, we've just been collaborating a lot. And I think um, also me like growing up and just feel a bit more secure in what I like and what I want to sing and like just take up space in a room it's always nice but when you do with somebody that you know it feels even more like comfortable so um how I like to do it is because we had like three days together and how I like to do it is to just start like a couple of different songs you maybe write a verse and you write a chorus and then you move on to the next song and the next beat and then you write a verse and a chorus and then like day two or three you would kind of pick out like the favorites of the snippets that you did and finish them but when we started can tame her all of a sudden we we had written like the second verse and that's always a really good sign because you just want to like be with the song you don't want to move on so um we wrote it like really quick uh it felt great we were listening to these like late 70s early 80s tracks and we were like let's do something like this because in general my album well it will sound like it's a little bit of like <laughs> you know it's it's a little <laughs> bit of everything um, so I wouldn't say this single represents the rest of the album, but I don't really feel like any song does. So um, I really love and me and Uza, we we have previously written songs in third person, which I also think is quite fun that it's not like I'm crazy, like I'm going out, I'm having fun. It's like she's she's crazy, like she's going out. She's, you, you know, you, and like it could be me. I don't know who is she. But <laughs> it is like telling a story, you know? Um, mm. and uh yeah, it went it went really quick. And literally, I like Danja did some co-production with the drums to just make it sound like you know but um in general it it was just it just sound just like that and i kept it and we're like play it again 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 like i couldn't get enough of it and uh that's just what i want from a song really to just that like replay value um and i just don't get tired of it and to me honestly it just gets better and better um so yeah i feel really happy and so, like, what would you say some of your favorite, I guess, music influences growing up were? Or just, like, even sort of form, you know, your sort of um, vocabulary for the kind of music you like? I mean, you're also talking about working with Danger, and you've worked with Max Martin, too. Yeah. I mean, these are, like, the the pop got They've crafted, like, they ran the 2000s. Totally, you know? totally. Like, yeah. I mean, and still do, you know, I think um, growing up, funny enough, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but like, I was never really a huge music fan. I was a huge mm. um, performance fan. Like what I was watching mm. was like live performances um, of my favorite girlies you know, big voices. I love a vocalist. Um, Beyonce is obviously my number one. Whitney Houston, Celine Dion, like Christina Aguilera. My mom loves like, like old 
you know, Aretha Franklin or like Etta James, they just like big voices, like soulful voices. So um, growing up, I was never really like into like, oh, like oh, this guitar beat. I was listening to whatever I felt <laughs> like I would do the best performance in the mirror to, you know? Mm-hmm. And that was usually like, you know, Chris and I like Beyonce, Whitney Houston, like, so those were my influencers um, or they were influencing me growing up just because I wanted to be on stage. And like when I everything that I was doing was just standing in the mirror. I was pretending I had a you know stadium in front of me. And that was all that I did. Literally, that was all that I did after school. I would hang out with friends and then I would go home and I'll be like, show's high. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, how often do you find yourself having to like fight to protect the thing that kept you propelled into this career when you were a kid? I mean, like, to, you've done it for now so long. Yeah. It's been like 15 years. And now it's, you know, the thing you do to make money. Yeah. It's not just the thing you do to like feel, to feel the fantasy, so yeah. to speak. Um, how, what do you feel you have to fight to protect that thing? Interesting question. I think, um, yes sometimes you know I do ask myself I'm like do I really really want this or do I have I just tricked myself into thinking I want this because it's all I've ever known my whole life like I've been so determined since I was like this small that it's like is this really what I want or is it just autopilot like have I put myself in a box you know but I find myself just feeling so joyful and like truly happy when I get to sing and maybe that's like a universal human thing I think everybody feels good when they sing especially together with people but I feel like I'm kind of born as an entertainer so if I wouldn't sing I would probably um I don't know do podcast maybe host radio I would maybe act I would maybe I'll be a fucking stand-up comedian like I don't care I would just I like I crave the validation <laughs> of like strangers so bad that I would put myself on stage no matter what it was. And then I just happened to be like good at singing from an early age. So, you know, they just merged really well together. Um, but I still feel happy when I sing. And I think as long as I feel that, I will just keep doing it. Um, and I actually really like all parts of being an artist. Like I really like promo days. I really like going to the radio. Some people don't, but I like love going to the radio station. Like what is more fun than show up, have some glam coming over in the morning. And then you go and you talk about yourself and like stuff you love. <laughs> and then you go home. Like dream day for me. Um so <laughs> Yeah. By the way, uh, I don't hate stand-up for you, by the way. I don't yeah. hate it. I can feel the formation of a joke. I think you'd love crafting I do, it. I think I it'd do be fun love for a you. good joke. And I love, like, I don't know. Like, I like I like for people to feel maybe a part of it is, like, escape from your regular world. Like, that was what I was doing when I was younger and I was standing in the mirror. Like, I was in my own fantasy and I was really, not that I needed to, like, escape from my um reality I was just bored I think and it's so nice to just be in your head and like it's a form of daydreaming I guess and like manifestation also kind of somehow um and uh yeah I just really like that Mm -hmm. 
this is all making so much sense because I would also say that um, one thing, especially about being a current pop star, is that there's all this promo that goes into it, but also, you know, like staying in touch with like fans on social media mm. and promoing your music that way. You are truly one of the few people who I feel like, like I love following you on TikTok, for oh, instance. You do? Like you actually, you <laughs> enjoy interacting with fans. Like you're so fucking funny yeah. on TikTok, for one. I'm shy on um, TikTok. I feel like I should post more. Thank you, though. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I just like how how do you feel being so tapped into what I guess I would we would call like stan culture mm, online, mm. you know? Especially for like a young woman in pop music. Yeah. You know, you you get those moments where everyone's like, if your song isn't charting, you know, for 10 weeks at number one, <laughs> they call you a flop. <laughs> I know. No, it truly is like that. And I think I've like it used to really affect me. And I think maybe to some extent like because I'm just a person like when I see things online um you know I'm also very empathetic and like I I'm I'm sensitive I think that's the word I am sensitive but I think when people you know I think it's so beautiful when people make stand accounts for me obviously but then mm-hmm. it's it's also <laughs> that like level of you know are you okay you know like do you have friends um is your family nice to you because that also is a form of escapism maybe and like it's weird to me when I read um about like let's say it's another stan account standing another pop girl and they're like telling me that I'm not doing good enough because the person that they're standing is doing better and I'm like why are you that's not even your accomplishments like you are flexing on me (laughs) with somebody who doesn't know you like you know what I mean like it's it's a a really weird and then sometimes like the, the the meanest people I sometimes go in and I read their profiles and I'm like oh but like you're you're crazy like, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, oh, okay, I understand. Yeah. Like, I can't even be mad because you're insane. Like, you know, I would, yeah. I, I feel bad for you in a way. Um, but it is, you know, I, I do see everything. And I spend a lot of time online. And sometimes I reference, like, videos or, like, stuff. And people are like, how have you seen this? And I'm like, I spend, like, a good 10 hours on my phone. Like I, <laughs> I know what's up online, um, but I, I think also growing, like growing older, I'm 25 now um, mm-hmm. to just remind yourself what's real and what's not. Cause what's real is like people showing up to my shows or, you know, people like having like a conversation with people. It's not really real to see like somebody with, I'm just picking a person like an Ariana Grande like picture that I don't like I don't know who that is I really don't so mm-hmm, I'm trying right. to remind myself that it's not really real you know mm-hmm. yeah it's uh, hard to say like you know when people are like that um rabid and mean or whatever you want to be like well consider the source and people are really good at concealing who they actually are yeah. and also I think our refrain on this podcast has been you cannot trust anybody who stands one thing yeah like it's just nobody is that good <laughs> so if your whole identity is built around like one, one random thing, person yeah. it's like what is going on here there's it can't just be the music no you're and into, I also think you know? forget that most of those people they're like 13 14 and there's something going totally. on in your brain when you're a young teenager um because you're like erratic like I remember me being 13 14 I was not 
like I am now. Like, you know what I mean? I don't think I would like myself mm-hmm. very much if I met me now as a teenager. Um, and then you like mature and you find like other things in life. But there is a beauty in that like crazy teenage like rage, I guess, too, in a way. Um, because I don't know, I feel like it's very personal to me. Like I could definitely have had like stand accounts being 13, 14, but then you think you're like having this leveled conversation with somebody more mature. And then it's like, oh, you're actually still a child. So I'll give you slack, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, it reminds me too of one of my um, favorite videos, which obviously you know, the, um, he stands on kids like fighting on the, he stands on Larson, but also I was reminded of that because, um, was that the same person who ba- recorded the video of them rapping Ice Spice yeah, yeah. to um, Leah Michelle. He goes everywhere. He's done that to, <laughs> like, every celebrity. And, um, yeah, Harry, like, will always live forever in my heart. Um, but it is an interesting thing in, like, pop culture. Because also, you know, in a way, like, that is kind of creating some... Have, like the people who have fan accounts for me, like, you know, I don't, I, I wouldn't know like how well my songs are doing, or I wouldn't know, like I couldn't make a song trend on Twitter by myself or even that like they are kind of doing the job for the record labels. You know what I mean? Like sometimes mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, you're really out here like putting in the work and this whole machine like wouldn't really be the same without those people. So there's like, a complex relationship, I guess. Um, but I think in general, the people, the, what I've seen, like the people who follow me are very nice. And I try to tell people to like, hey, like if you see some negativity, just like ignore that, you know? Don't start to like, okay, bizarre, she actually stole blah, blah, blah. Like, <laughs> you know, it's not going to lead anywhere. <laughs> but I do understand that you would feel the need to like prove somebody wrong because I love that. But yeah, the Sanzara Larson is like iconic in pop culture, at least in, in, <laughs> in, in the sand world, for sure. I like it when they get like, I like it when it's over the top and not like evil. I like, yeah. I, there's nothing funnier than like, me ironic, than like, in a way. Yeah, there's nothing funnier than like the replies to like a pop crave tweet. You know, where someone's right. like, yeah. someone's like, Demi yeah. is flopping. And then someone will say like, no, Ariana's flopping like on Mars. Yeah. Like, like when it when they, like, like, they when it goes so to the extremes, yeah. <laughs> then it's that it's funny. Yeah, totally. <laughs> or like you know, if let's say Pop Cray posts like a selfie that I posted, and like Zara Larson looks incredible, and I just know the first comment will be <laughs> defined and incredible, and then the other will be like not you, and then I'll be like, oh my, like I just know exactly what they will say, and then it's you know, it's like a, their own little culture down there yeah. yeah i think they maybe underestimate you i mean that was pretty savvy what you just did like oh, you have it down it. you have they their said. mania I, down to a science yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true it's true no you said you might be somebody who would have started a stand account when you were 12 or 13 who do you think would have driven you most yeah. rabid yeah, oh yeah, yeah. easy mm-hmm. easy what era would that have been that would have been around a single ladies time yeah like probably um hmm so i first started out like loving her at like b-day era but i might have been too young to mm-hmm. like be on twitter let's say around like 
I am. You know, around that, maybe I would have gone on Twitter. I didn't really know about Twitter at that point. Um, It's not huge in Sweden. Uh, I think the people who use it, like, mostly are a group of people that I don't want to associate with. They're mostly, like, extremely right-winged. You know, they're so organized on Mm. Twitter. Every time I trend in Sweden on Twitter, I know it's not for my music, and I know it's about those people not agreeing with something I said and it's just, you know, mm. but now when I do, oh, yikes. yeah, it's yikes. but now when I do music, you know, it's always obviously a different thing. And I think majority of my followers are international. Yeah. Mm. I just want to say, by the way, I love the poetic pause you put before or after I am and before <laughs> Sasha Fierce. Yeah. Really respectfully done. <laughs> there yeah, is an ellipse yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. It jumped out. <laughs> um, so, now I have to ask, the fourth album is coming. Yeah. Is it done? Pretty much. Yeah, okay. it really is. It feels like, it's not mixed and mastered completely, but I would say it's mm-hmm. it's it's there. Like the frame of it, it's all there. And um, I feel really excited about it. That's why I think also I'm usually so, so anxious before a release. Like before a single release, I I'm just like, maybe this isn't for me. Like, I just feel like (laughs) so pressured. And it's scary, you know, having to work on something for a long time and then you release it because you don't have control over it anymore. Um, But what I feel so good about now is that I feel ready and I feel prepared and can't tame her. I feel really good. I always feel really good about my songs that I'm releasing, but I think it's just the anxiety that takes over me before. But now... um, Compared to the other times, I'm like way more prepared. We got the video and the song for the next one. And then we got the song after that one. And then we got like the song that coming on with that person. It's like, and then the album's coming. It's It feels like a very good planned rollout. And I haven't really had that before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, sp- speaking of album, and you talked about how this coming album is kind of all over the place. That not one yeah. track really stands for the whole thing. Is that something you have to build confidence about? Because I just, I think of myself intuitively, I'm not a musician at all, putting an album together and I feel like this has to lead to this and narratively this has to follow this or whatever. So how much like reconfiguration and second guessing goes into sequencing an album? Well, I don't think it's completely, completely crazy. I do think a lot of the songs are like cousins, you know, with each other. Mm -hmm. But um, I wouldn't say sonically like... Well, you know what it is? I think this time um, I've been working a lot with like a very small group of people. So that have allowed me to be like creative with um, my little bubble. And then just like naturally the way it's being produced is it doesn't, the songs aren't like maybe sounding exactly the same, but it might be some elements that are the same, like there's strings or it might feel a bit more organic or there's like piano in there and the drums, like, you know, Dane Job like done the drums and produced like the majority of the album, not can't um, like started off, I can't tame her, but um, a lot of the songs have been with Rick and Danger, Rick Knowles and Danger, which is also a really interesting combination, I think. And it sounds so amazing. And that, you know, I think it's also like Rick Knowles is a legend and he is, thank God, one of those people who doesn't want like nine people in the room. It's very personal. And he would sit down and he would be like, he would expect me to come in with song titles 
He would expect me to be prepared. He would expect me to like have an idea of a melody. And then he'll be like, you sit here. And he'll be right in front of the piano. And he'll be like, look in my eyes. We're going to jam. And, you know, he's very like serious. Um, but also brings out like the best in me, I think. So to find that confidence, honestly, um, I think I've always been a little bit like that when you listen when I listen to my older like albums and EPs that aren't available outside of Scandinavia um it's it's all pop you know it's not that crazy I think I'm also ex- exaggerating a little bit maybe but uh it definitely is some some ballads just a piano track there's some like there's this like 80s vibe um there's some more like R&B or hard hitting like more hip-hop sounding drums there's some like you know you know what I mean there's a bit of everything it's Mm -hmm. still pop and I think honestly maybe it's just my voice and like the quality of the songs because the reason why I love Rihanna and why the world loves Rihanna is that she's also kind of doing everything but then right I think like everything she's doing is really good and that's a dream to get to do something like that where it's like oh it's a little bit of everything but everything is like high quality exactly i've i've always said that um one like i love i love the spotify um i love i love the algorithm of like when you do like a start radio from a song yeah. like it really sort of matches like your music yeah. taste and it can go like anywhere but one of the hardest people to do it for is yeah. rihanna because if you pick like please don't stop the music you're going to get that kind of like totally. music. But if you do like any song from like Auntie, yeah. um, it's going to sound completely yeah. different too. You know, like there's so many different eras of Rihanna that sound wildly different from one yeah. another. And I guess, you know, it's hard to kind of think of it as you're making it in the moment. I think my only thing is like, is the song good? That's that's it you know and then when you look mm-hmm. back at it maybe for in a few years you'll say oh it's so obvious that the sound is like this but now when i'm in it i'm like it's crazy it's all over the place when i don't know i look back at it and be like oh now i can see what it is so when i do songs i just want to have good songs it doesn't have to be more mm-hmm. complicated than that to me uh, and I guess my final question is, who is your favorite live experience? Beyonce. What artist have you seen? Oh, again, yeah. yet again, you don't say. <laughs> <laughs> Which tour? I actually loved the Formation tour. I thought that was... Mm, yeah, like, that big cube. Like, it was gorgeous. And it was yeah. so like... Because sometimes when you play stadiums, it's really hard to feel like I'm in here with the artist, like whoever performs in a stadium. But I think I either had really good seats <laughs> or she was amazing. <laughs> Maybe it was both. Um, <laughs> but it really like I was crying like a babe. I always cry at Beyonce concerts. But I think like that was like, wow. I think it was my first stadium experience in a, for a concert. And uh, yeah, the big cube, everything was just so sleek. And um, I just loved that whole album. I think... That was like my best. You know what? Who's also an incredible, incredible experience that I've had? Swamai. Do you know him? He's from Belgium and um, he blew me away. Like if you ever get the chance to see him, I would say go do it because that was, 
just like he's so oh the details of that man is out of this world and he he's very artistic and he cares about his art and his craft a lot um that was incredible too great yeah um it's so nice to meet you i mean like i really do i do love uh your music so much i was uh you know i I love your lyrics too. You Thank know, you. Um, You're, oh, it's so witty. Yeah. When people can get actual like wit into like the fast syllables of a pop song, I mean that is like damn near impossible. It sounds so Thank good. Thank you. Thank you so the, much. The amount of times that I put on, like as the last song before I'm going out, um, ain't my fault <laughs> because I love. I yeah. specifically love the line. I just called the Uber right and outside. it's right outside. I'm like it's. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. It's outside. <laughs> it's outside. <laughs> what about it? Yeah, no, I love that song. Uh-huh. Another one, another Uzo, M N E K banger. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he's he's really great. So, Truly. uh we love the single. Thank you. Can't wait for the album. And thank you so much for being thank here. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. Thank you for talking to me. Can't tame her is out now, and it is a banger. Go listen to that. And when we're back, keep it. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It's Keep It. Lewis, what's yours? Mine is a Keep It, I guess, to this person in general. Mm. But today, Ben Stein, who you know from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, he was a one-time Nixon speechwriter. He said today that he misses the good old days when, and I guess this is some funny video, I don't know. When, quote, a large African-American woman was on his syrup bottle, but woke corporate culture ruins everything. <sighs> Why do people have to Bill Maher their, wa- their asses into the conversation every day <laughs> with their lame fucking takes? <laughs> ben Stein, you have an established career. You nearly ruined it with that movie Expelled, where you talked about how creationism needs to be taught in schools. The number one thing I resent about Ben Stein is that he is the subject of one of my favorite game shows of all time, Win Ben Stein's Money. Truly, mm. I will go back on uh, YouTube and watch that game any day. It's some of the hardest trivia, most unexpected trivia, and the contestants are so pleased to do well on that show. It's such a pleasure to watch. Jimmy, who is my boss, by the way, uh, is a, a great co-host on the show. They actually both won Emmys for that. But it's just, you know when like you can count on somebody to say horrible things in the news? Like If they're trending, they've done something horrible. Mm-hmm. But there's this added indignity to the fact that you did love something they did once upon a time. Ben Stein is absolutely one of the key figures in that milieu for me. Mm-hmm. And that I have to like sort of lash myself every time I see his name trending is just the worst feeling. You know, it's like Kirstie Alley or, um, mm-hmm. you know, even like someone like Roseanne or something like that. It's just grim that I have to see their name and know like, oh God, more of this. How much of his money did they win? I mean, damn, you know, he broke. (laughs) He must be falling (laughs) on hard times. Yeah. I always find this particular argument so funny just because how many of these people were eating um, pancakes every morning and using Aunt Jemima? Right. Was that our favorite syrup? I just don't know about that. No. Uh, I liked Mrs. Butterworth. Right. You know? 
Maybe I mean it's not, and it's not even one of those like, well, we weren't allowed to have Aunt Jemima up in our house, you know. It wasn't one of those. I think I we just got Mrs. Buttersworth. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't really have an opinion one way or the other. I don't know that I've ever taken in the artistic um, splendor of a syrup bottle and thought it needs to be this one way in order for me to enjoy myself. Now, I would watch a Jemima Buttersworth um, like one season limited series. Oh, sure. Oh, you're yeah. going to cast that right now? I Because I will not. So you can <laughs> cast that. Yeah, I, th- I. You know what? I think you know, like um, Lupita <laughs> God, Nyong'o. Let's hear it. Oh, sh- that's the and, role she needs. That's what and, she wants. And uh, <laughs> that's what we should do with our Oscar winners. And, and yeah. Alicia Vikander. Oh wow, a real stretch for her. <laughs> She's Mrs. Butter's word. <laughs> wow, the Dan- the the Danish girl, and that you pour her over a Danish. Yes, well, can't be worse than when she was Lara Croft. So. <laughs> <laughs> And apparently we're still getting some other Lara Croft thing, like a, a series or something. It's so interesting, the staying power of that character, which, I mean, like, I know there are recent video games in the Tomb Raider universe, but it still feels very 1998. It feels like if we were constantly trying to make new superhero movies out of the miseducation of Lauren Hill or something. Well, once again, I'm going to be upset that there's no salt, too, because we have all these Mission Impossibles. We have Harrison Ford, um, you know, um, Leaving his crypt to do Indiana Jones. I'm kidding. We love him. We love Harrison Ford. That was so nasty of me. Uh, <laughs> but he lives in Idaho. That is a crypt. So <laughs> Harrison, I am sorry. I love you. Uh and Callista. Um, I would I would never disparage you. Um, I mean Hollywood Homicide, you and um Josh Hartnett is one of my favorite movies. I don't know why it's not a good movie, but um <laughs> It's it's one of my favorites. It's nice that you question that. Yeah, and I love I love Harrison Ford. That was that was rude of me. Anyway, um, but he is doing this new Indiana Jones movie um, that I'll probably see. Uh, but there's no urgency in me seeing it, you know. And it's sort of like a how did this get made um, mm-hmm. situation. Even though the last one with Shia LaBeouf was probably more of a how did this get made situation. This one at least has. Um, you know, Fleabag in it. What, yeah. what is her name? <laughs> Phoebe Waller-Bridge. Uh, yes, no, okay. The fact that Phoebe Waller-Bridge <laughs> straddles the Indiana Jones and Star Wars universes, yes. very unexpected. Uh, um, I also, had to go with Fleabag because I was blanking on her name and it would have been very misogynistic of me to say Martin McDonough's girlfriend. Right. <laughs> um, but I also want to say about this Indiana Jones movie, I'm looking forward to it because, I'm sorry, we still need a refresh after that last one where Kate Blanchett served Bob and also I believe was served a one-way ticket to the Green Mile. Uh, that is her worst performance for sure. I'm obsessed with the reference to the Green Mile right now. I can't explain it. There's nothing wrong with serving a little Bob. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, I have a poster of Lee Grant behind me. I think that's all people should serve. Uh, but I look at us always getting off track. I brought that up because there's no reason why a new Laura Croft movie shouldn't just have Angelina Jolie in it. Please. Oh, God. What are we even doing with her better. right now? She looks better than these old men dusting off their franchises. Right. You know? And, right. you know, Lara Croft, tomb raiding. We, we already know that she, you know, is still tomb raiding in real life. You know, she's <laughs> taking Brad Pitt for everything in the divorce. Right. What about a movie called Salt and Pepper? Who plays Pepper? <sighs> 
I think we have to get Jessica Chastain. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, not back to the 355. God, yeah, we just got or, out of there. Or it's a joint sequel, um, and it's Jennifer Garner, because she starred in a movie called Peppermint. Okay. Uh, you, maybe you don't remember, like, 2018, like, vigilante film she did. but Mysteriously, no. I think my yeah. brain said it's a skip. I did not see it. I think it's one of her few missteps. The trailer was very much like um, Mexicans are crossing the border and let me murder them all. Oh, <laughs> I'm not really signed on to the log line, I have to say. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Salt and Peppa. Listen, if that's what I have to do to get salt too made. All right. No, I think it'd be fabulous. Ira, what is your keep it this week? My keep it goes to this mom and pop um, salad place. In New York. Uh-huh. Called, called Sweet Green. Oh, that's more popular than you're leading on. Yes. Yeah, I have had yeah. it a couple times, even just this weekend. Uh, I am kind of over Sweet Green. Let me tell you about it. One, they changed their bowls up. So, like, the bowls are huge now. And when you get a salad, it highlights the fact that you're literally just being giving, like, given, like, a clump of arugula. Mm-hmm with, like, some other ingredients sprinkled on. It's, it's like eating a side salad at this point, and it's still $20. Right. It is an expensive salad, I will say. Yeah. Uh, it's not, it's not, I'm not really feeling nourished anymore. Uh, it, it happened with Chipotle. It happens all the time, you know? Like, all of a sudden, it's like, well, here's a little bit less. It's, it's giving morsels, yes. Yeah. Uh, so I'm a little oversweet green. I am now in love with kava. Never had it. Yeah. So kava is like Mediterranean bowls. And I think Mediterranean is in this year. Okay. Uh, I'm somebody who needs like a dependable salad place. Uh, This speaks to me. I don't know. And also it's like, I can't explain it. I'll always spend too much money on it. Like I think I can't make one myself. But by the way, I also can't make one myself. So it's true. I feel like the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s is when sort of like salad culture rose. And then it started being like, well, we're going to charge you a lot to make, to mix these things in with, with greenery that you really could make at home. It's, mm. it's deceptively hard to make a salad at home, but it's easier than you might think. It depends on what salad you're making. I will never make a kale salad at home. Right. I've right. never been able to cook kale. Yeah, I don't want to learn how to. It's I'm so baffled by people being gratified by cooking. I just I love I, I, cooking, but you know, I'm not, I mean. I'm not I'm not beating the kale. You you got you got to like 12 years of slave that shit to get it to taste good. <laughs> what we have done to Lupita Nyong'o's legacy just in the past 15 minutes on this <laughs> podcast really is dark and unfortunate. <laughs> uh, she did that by being in Star Wars. Oh, yes, playing, I believe, Goo. I don't know what that character was. Yeah, and it was not Goo from my brother and me. Who sold Goo Punch with such relish. (laughs) You were talking about my brother and me recently. I don't know why this is top of mind. but On Twitter, you were talking about it. You were talking about... um... Oh, yes. I I was talking about how in the 90s, you would see every episode of their show 75 times because they only made a certain amount of episodes of most shows. And then they would replay them for years and years. So my brother and me, which, by the way, is, shall we say, not a good show. I still saw every episode of a million times. There were 13 episodes of the show. Uh, It was put in this. Yes, that was the era where um, 
It used to be like 100 episodes to get in the syndication for like primetime shows or whatever. But when you had cable, like a Nickelodeon or something, they would just re-air their own shows. And so my brother and me was always on. Yeah. And you would think there was more episodes to come, but there would not be. I, I kept waiting for new episodes of my brother and me. Right. No, like there were, I think the most episodes they did of a show would be like 65. And that was something like Clarissa Explains It All Mm. or or Rugrats at the time. But for the most part, those shows ended early and abruptly. So you would only see whatever, like uh, uh, Salute Your Shorts has under 30 episodes, for example. Yeah. Right. I remember being sad when like Ghost Rider was canceled. Oh, I love that show because reading is so cool. And they understood that. Ghost Rider ended in season three um, with the episode like Attack of the Slime Monster. And there was a, speaking of goo, it was like this purple doll called Gooey Gus um, that I feel like Jamal's little sister was carrying around. And they were helping like Casey write like a short story. So it was a short story about the, the slime doll attacking them all. So it's it's that thing, you know, where like someone's writing a fictional story and so the fictional story is being acted out by oh, the sure. characters in the show. Um, iconic, but also last episode of Ghost Rider ever. Weird. Yeah, there's no show that's like that. P- the P- 90s PBS, there needs to be a specific oral history of that time and like Carmen Sandiego and all the fun stuff, they, the geography bee, things like that. Believe it or not, I was talking about Carmen Sandiego yesterday. You don't say. I could not. I was asking someone the distance, like how long it gets, how long it takes to get from like Connecticut to Vermont or from like New York to Vermont. And I was like, I have to confess, I know where most of the states are, except for the East Coast. I have to say, I have seen a map of the US many times. I am a trivia oriented and obsessed person. I have to say, the northeast part of the United States is still a little bit tricky for me. I have to say. It's, it's like, I'm shocked Ro- to say it. Where's Rhode Island? Next to Florida? <laughs> I'm a little, I think I'm a little bit more accurate than that. Not much, but a little bit more. But I brought that up because I remember I specifically tried to learn where African countries are because I always felt it was a little racist where they give these white kids the, the challenge at the end of Car- Where in the World is Carmen San Diego, for people who didn't watch it, involved standing on a map and you had to run around and like stamp countries uh, on a big map. And it was like when, when a kid got Africa, it was a, it was a wrap. No, that you knew that they were over on the prize budget. You know, they were like, <laughs> Jenny's not going to space camp today. Yeah. <laughs> but let me tell you, if you got Europe, that's beautiful. Or, or like South America where there's yeah. like, you know, 11 countries or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, shout out to the kids who would not Get Brazil. Yeah. <laughs> and you made it to the bonus round? Really yeah. shocking stuff. Means you were dumb. <laughs> Means the you comedy on that show was really good. I like Greg Lee, the host, and uh, Rockapella. Like the way they incorporated everything. Lynn Thigpen, of course, wonderful show. We need to bring that back. Bring back learning. Yeah. Oh, learn. Yeah, no. There's a whole, we talked about that with Adam Conover, I believe. There's a yeah. whole initiative at the time about like education. It's like why Animaniacs was so good. Anyway, yeah. we'll talk about that in another episode. And now. We don't want anybody in America to be smart, you know? No, it's so, too dangerous. Yeah. Um, well, thanks, Ron DeSantis. So <laughs> that's our show this week. Um, Whole lot of show. Thank you to Audie Cornish for joining us. Thank you to Zara Larson for joining us. And uh, we'll see you next week.
Remember to check out full episodes of Keep It on our official Keep It YouTube channel. And please rate and review Keep It on your podcast platform of choice, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, etc. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Chris Lord. And our associate producer is Malcolm Whitfield. Our executive producers are Ira Madison III, that's me, and Louis Vertel. This episode was recorded and mixed by Evan Sutton. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroote, Nar Malconian, and Delon Villanueva for production support every week. And as always, Keep It is filmed in front of a live studio audience. chocolate treats mixed into dark chocolate ice cream, the Tillamook Chocolate Collection is a chocolate game changer because the thing that pairs best with chocolate is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.